So um, if you're new around here, like Michaela probably has no idea about this. If you're new around here, if you've come recently, um, you probably have no idea that uh, last summer, in the middle of COVID, I decided, you know what, I need to lose a few pounds. And so starting in July and going all the way through December, I lost over 70 pounds. Now don't clap, don't, no, no, no. All that means is I was fat enough to need to lose over 70 pounds. And some of you, if you're new, you're looking at me going, man, maybe another 20 would help, you know. Um, but, but it's the funniest, funniest thing. I'm telling you this, not so you clap for my weight loss. I'm telling you this because I want to tell you this. For the first time in my life, almost a week doesn't go by when someone asks me for weight loss advice. <laughs> it is the craziest thing. People are like, wow, you know, I've been home during COVID and I put on weight. How did you lose weight? Everybody wants weight loss advice from me, which is such a crack up because in my entire life, no one ever said to me, man, how do you keep that physique? My whole life, I've never had that. Because um, you don't ask an obese person for advice about weight loss, right? Um, but people ask me about that now. Um, but you know what nobody ever asked me about? Hair products. <laughs> I never get somebody going, hey, how do you keep that sheen just the way you, you know? When I was a teenager, I had long flowing hair. I carried a brush in my back pocket at all times. It was the 70s and 80s. Guys had long hair. You wouldn't know if I was a male or a female if you just saw my head from behind. And people used to ask me then about, man, what kind of cream rinse do you use? What kind of conditioner? How often, you know? Nowadays, I don't get that question because you don't ask a bald person for advice about hair products, right? Well. We've been talking for several weeks now about joining in God's great commission with him. And for weeks, it has been in my notes, toward the back of my notes, to have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And for weeks, I have gone too, far, too long in the sermon, and that's because you guys don't listen fast enough. And I ended up having to cut that verse. And so this week, I decided I'm starting with 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open to the back of your New Testament. Um, after James, you're going to find 1 Peter if you, most of you know where James is, go to 1 Peter and turn to chapter 3. And I want us to look together at this verse as we set the stage for Acts chapter 2. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense or give an explanation to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we're supposed to set Christ aside or sanctify Christ as the Lord of our hearts and always be ready to give an answer, to give a defense, to, to give an explanation to anyone who asks us to explain why there is so much hope in our hearts, right? And people... If they're walking with Jesus in a way where God has complete access to their life, then something is so powerfully going on in their lives that the people around them will notice. 
and the people around them will ask. Man, you look thinner than last time I saw you. How'd you do it? That's the question I keep getting over and over and over again. You know the question I want to get? Hey, you're walking in so much hope. Why are you doing that? Times are dark. Times are tough. People are losing their jobs. People are dying of this disease. Everybody's having to wear a mask. Everything's hard. How is it that you are so excited? How is it that you're so optimistic? How is it that you are so hopeful? In a time like this, when things are truly difficult in ways we are not used to having them be difficult, are people coming up to you and saying, hey, could you explain how it is that you're doing so great in a time when the rest of us are not doing so great? Peter seems to be of the opinion that if you're actually living in the hope of Jesus, People will notice and people will ask. We're supposed to be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks us to explain about the hope that is within us. That's all a part of being on this great commission with God. And so that brings us to an important question. How can we get people to notice that there is something different about us and notice it enough that they want to ask? In other words, what is the mark, the obvious identifier of a life that is on fire for Jesus where God is transforming your life? And we're gonna try to answer that question as we turn together to the second chapter of the book of Acts, okay? Acts chapter two. Now, as you're turning there to Acts chapter two, it's, it's um, the fifth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, or scroll through your phone till you see it says Acts and push that button. Either way, find the book of Acts, turn to chapter two, and I'm going to do something you've never seen me do. In just a brief few minutes, I'm gonna summarize 36 verses, right? So look at your watch and see how long it takes me to do this, okay? Acts chapter two, verses one through 36, right? Jesus has said to them, go and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and then act upon what the Spirit tells you to do and empowers you to do. So the scripture tells us in Acts chapter two that they go and they wait and it gives us the name of the 11 remaining apostles um, before Matthias is added. And, and, and it says they went to this upper room in Jerusalem and there they were waiting. Now that upper room probably is not a room like you picture in your mind. Every time you think of the upper room, the phrase upper room in the New Testament, right? We know that Jesus and his disciples went to an upper room for the Last Supper and they were served the Last Supper in the upper room and then we turn to Acts and we go, oh, they went back to the upper room. And we think it's probably the same upstairs of some house somewhere. It is not the upstairs of a house. Guys, the houses in that region are small. At that time, they were exceptionally small. There's no way you could be in the upper room of a house with 120 people, which is what it says were there. And not only were there 120 people there, but there were thousands who responded to Peter's message, right, which we're about to read about. So in Acts chapter two, they're in what's called the upper room, and most scholars think that that is probably what's called Solomon's portico, which is the sort of uh, right edge of the temple area. As you look at the temple, there's these steps that go up to the wall, up to the temple, and to the right, there's these colonnades. This is not there today, but in the ancient um, temple, there were these colonnades that was like a covered patio area that was massive, huge, like football fields long. 
And that's where visitors would come and they would gather. And if you didn't have a place to stay when you came for one of the feasts, that's where you stayed. And during the Feast of Booths, that would be where people set up their booths. And that would be where people camped out. That would be where people gathered. And there were rabbis who would gather along there and teach. And little groups of people would gather around those rabbis and they would listen to the teaching of their rabbis. So probably that's what they're talking about. By the way, did you know that today is Pentecost Sunday? Yeah, wake up, Christians. It's Pentecost Sunday, so you never know what the Holy Spirit might do today. I'm just telling you, pay attention. It is Pentecost Sunday, which is 50 days after Easter, right? And that's what we're seeing here in Acts chapter two. It's Pentecost Sunday. So Jesus spent time with them for 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascended, and then 10 days, they're waiting there for the Holy Spirit to come. And on the 50th day, something amazing happens. There's a sound like a violent rushing wind. It's not a wind, uh, it's a sound like a rushing wind, something like a hurricane, something like a tornado, like a, like a train driving through your living room. Everyone stops and everyone notices. Something like tongues of fire come and rest upon the heads of the apostles. Not tongues, not fire, but something like tongues of something like fire. And they all begin to speak in languages that they have never learned, these Galilean fishermen who are not even educated. And they begin to speak in languages they have never learned learned and they begin to praise and glorify God in all these different languages. Now why would they do that? Because they're there at the temple and people have come for the feast of Pentecost and there are thousands of people from all of the region around them and they speak various different languages. There's 15 or 16 people groups that are mentioned in the passage who all speak different languages and they're all hearing the gospel in their own language. It's an amazing incredible thing that the Holy Spirit is doing as the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and the church is born at Pentecost. And in the midst of the chaos and everybody going, what in the world is going on? And crowds coming from everywhere to see what is happening. People are rushing to the area. And just when the chaos gets crazy, Peter stands up and takes a microphone. And all the other disciples go, oh no. <laughs> What's he gonna say? And Peter basically says, hey, let me get your attention. In the book of Joel, it describes what we're seeing here today. And he preaches a sermon from the book of Joel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that so moves people's hearts that it ends up, look at verse 36, there we go, stop your watch. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, that this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the end of his story. He goes from Joel all the way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he says he's both Lord and Christ. And how did the people respond to what Peter said? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They asked. Peter just preaches. It's not like he gives an invitation. It's not an altar call like we would see in churches or at a harvest crusade or something today. He just preaches about what happened. And they're so 
moved by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in that place that their response is, oh man, I can't stay the same. What must I do? And look at Peter's response, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. As many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They baptized 3,000 people that day. Now, if you study the the ancient temple layout, you'll you'll find that um, King Hezekiah created these uh, pools so that there would always be fresh water in case of uh, invasion. And so there in the Temple Mount, there's just pool after pool after pool after pool after pool after pool. And they were used for ritual cleansing. And so undoubtedly, they, they lead these people to Christ and then they say, what do we do? We need to get you baptized. And so they take them to these pools and they just start baptizing. And they are just dunking people one after another, after another, after another. And the estimate is that three thousand people became a part of the church that day. I was reading this this week and I was thinking, man, every pastor I know struggled during the time of COVID. And one of the reasons we struggle is because we think we know how to do ministry. And then along comes COVID and everything changes overnight. Overnight, we can't gather on, on the weekends for worship services what do you do if you can't do that? Overnight, we can't meet in homes for Bible studies. What do you do if you can't do that? Overnight, youth group events are canceled. Children's ministry is put aside in every way that we've ever known it. What do you do? You know what was exhausting for me and my pastor friends during COVID was the fact that every day we had to think about how to do ministry all over again. And, and, and I start feeling sorry for myself. And then I read Acts chapter two and I went, they had 3,000 new believers in one day and there was 12 apostles. Matthias is going, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't, you, you told me I was just gonna get my name in the book and it was gonna be fine. All of a sudden, they have to figure out how to make disciples of these people. They don't have buildings, they don't have budgets, they don't have denominations, they don't have organizations, they have no history, they have no plan and they have to do this. Imagine this, the Holy Spirit working and then just, just a, a couple days later that the number comes to be 5,000. It's like, wow, revival is breaking out, right? The church was born that day and Jesus' words have held true. The power of hell has not been able to, pre- to prevail against the Lord's church for the 2,000 years that have fallen. In fact, Wherever the power of hell comes strongest against the church, that's where the church grows stronger and mightier and more powerful and more impactful. Think about the persecution that came upon these new believers in the first century and what happened to the church. It exploded. 
Think about how much the church grew the first 300 years. The whole Middle East and Europe and North Africa saturated with the gospel as people started coming to Christ by tens and hundreds and thousands of people. Disciples made disciples and transformation took place for 300 years. And then as you may know, in the fourth century, Constantine comes along and says, I have this great idea. How about if the Roman government marries the church and we just become one thing, we become the Holy Roman Church and the church basically dies. And then you go through the dark ages, like 1,100 years of just brokenness and darkness and and no real revival that's breaking out except little pockets here and there every couple of hundred years. See, whenever the church is allowed to be comfortable, whenever the church gets fat and lazy, Whatever we begin to take for granted all the good stuff that is coming our way, what happens? The church becomes weaker. But wherever the church is threatened, wherever the church is challenged, the church grows. I, I read today, terrible story. Burkina Faso, small little impoverished nation in Africa. Um, they're having a baptism at this little church. And Al-Qaeda comes in and wipes everybody out. This just happened this week. This has been happening all throughout Nigeria and there's been uprisings in Morocco and Egypt and all, all throughout that Muslim region. And you know what's happening in the church? It's growing. Everybody that is truly walking with Jesus, man, it, it, it's not free to walk with Jesus. It's costly to walk with Jesus. And, and we've been so blessed in so many ways, but that blessing that we have in the Western church has made us fat and lazy so it doesn't cost us anything to walk with Jesus. And now when things start to turn up and oh dear Lord, some people in the media don't like the church, we freak out. Oh my goodness, the government is, is uh, enforcing rules on the church. We freak out. We think, oh, we're never gonna make it. How do we survive? Guys, the body of Christ grows under conflict. The body of Christ grows when there is pressure put on because it costs something to walk with Jesus and there's no more people who are walking around with a bumper sticker on their, on their car or a fish on their t-shirt who are not actually walking with Jesus because it costs you too much to walk with Jesus. And when you walk with Jesus that way, people notice and they ask for an explanation and more people come to know Christ. Today, the church is shrinking compared to the population in Europe and in the United States. But the church is growing in places like China and Indonesia and South America and Africa and India and elsewhere where being a Christian is uncomfortable and sometimes potentially costly. It's when people can see the evidence of inexplicable joy and peace and a hope in the lives of the people who claim to know Jesus, that people want to know what is making the difference. So if we're gonna be on this co-mission with Jesus, we just need to realize that there needs to be evidence in our lives that people will notice so they will ask. And by the way, as our country is becoming more secularized and Christianity is starting to lose popularity, don't be surprised if walking with Jesus starts to get you noticed. Perhaps in ways you don't even want to get noticed. So 3,000 added to that church that day. Just imagine the impact on the church in terms of how do we do pastoral care. 
What about the resources? Most of these people came from other countries. That's why we had to do this in all these different languages, right? They didn't go home. They stayed. And the church became their new family. Imagine that. Everybody had one or two families moving in with them. Everybody had to sell stuff in order to have enough money just to feed everybody. Everybody went through the persecution together. When the church was born, she made a grand entrance. 5,000 new additions the first couple of times Peter stands up and preaches. The story doesn't stop there. Remember, our question is how do we get people to want to know the reason for the hope that is within us? How do we get people to ask uh, about the hope that is within us? Well, look at verse 42. This young church, thousands of them now, what were they doing? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, let me just tell you, I'm not gonna spend much time on this verse, even though it's an absolutely central verse to the whole book of Acts and understanding what it is to be the church, because in the next series, we're gonna be talking about the life of the body of the church, right? So we'll get to that. But I do wanna point out a couple of things. And these are things you should be highlighting, underlining in your Bible. Number one, continually devoting themselves. This was not a halfway commitment. This was not something that they dabbled with. This was not something that they tried out to see how it would go. They continually devoted themselves to these things. What things? Well, the apostles' teaching. You know what we call that today? The Bible. They were devoting themselves to the teaching of the word of God. They had to get the word of God deep into their hearts. They were all, many of them, familiar with the Old Testament scripture, the law and the prophets, right? They were already familiar with it, but they did not understand it until the spirit came and Jesus, the culmination of the whole Old Testament, was on display before their eyes. And so they start studying the word. They were constantly being taught the word of God, continually devoting themselves to teaching, preaching, discussing, meditating, studying the word of God. They were, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. And we talk about this around here all the time. Fellowship in the American church usually means somebody is bringing a covered dish and we're all gonna have a good time together and we're gonna laugh together and eat food and talk about how I probably shouldn't have another brownie, but oh, what the heck, right? And that's what we call fellowship. That's not what the Bible is referring to when it says fellowship. Fellowship means they wove their lives together in such a way that they were inextricable from one another. They devoted themselves to each other, their finances, their health, their housing, their family life, all of those things became all intermixed with one another in ways that are so far beyond what we can even imagine in the modern church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And we're not sure exactly what they mean by the breaking of bread because later it mentions that they were taking their meals together, so it might be referring to that. And it also mentions that they were sharing the Lord's Supper together. And so it might be referring to that. My guess is it's probably referring to the sharing in the Lord's Supper because it's talking about this sort of formal worship experience that they devoted themselves to doing together. And Jesus said to them, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so the celebration of the Lord's Supper was essential to their gathering, and then they were devoting themselves to prayer, both public prayer and private prayer. 
They talked to Jesus all the time because they knew he was actually alive. Jesus was not just a religious decision they had made. He was not just a, a label for them to put on their lives. They knew he was alive. And so they talked with him. Now, we're gonna talk more about all those characteristics of the church as we move on to our next series. But for now, I want you to notice that their relationship with Jesus became the central defining mark of their lives. It, it wasn't that they were defined by their race and they happened to be Christian. It wasn't that they were defined by their age group and they happened to be Christian. It wasn't that they were defined by their vocation and they happened to be Christian. It wasn't that they were defined by their family structure and they happened to be Christians or defined by their gender and they happened to be Christians. It wasn't that they were defined by their political party and they happened to be Christians. No, they were defined by Jesus. Jesus was the central identifying mark of their lives. I want you to notice that that relationship was with Jesus was the central defining mark because I know some people who are so religious that their religion is their identifying mark, right? You think there was a few people around the temple that way in those days? The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the scribes, all of the keepers of the law. It wasn't just... Um, their relationship with God that identified them, it was their religious practices and how those differentiated from the religious practices of others. And there was perhaps one thing that stood out above it all and caused people to take notice. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you see it? You see that one mark? Go back in your Bibles. You got a pen? Mark it. Um, it, it. Together, verse 44. All things in common, verse 44. Verse 45, sharing. Verse 46, one mind. Verse 46, together. Verse 47, praising God and having found favor with all the people. They were so devoted to one another, so devoted to doing life together that people stood up and took notice. If you just watched the way they lived, you couldn't miss it. Selfless, prayerful, sacrificial, inclusive. I mean, just think about the social challenge of these people who speak different languages, have different skin tones, and come from different regions with different cultures, and suddenly they're all together, living together, and taking their meals together, and sharing their finances together. 99% of the Christians I know would say, no, no, that's not Christianity, that's a cult. But the biblical picture of Christianity is radical, you guys. And all these things that separate us, they become meaningless in light of the one thing that unites us. We're in this together. 
This is starting to sound like the church that Jesus described in John chapter 13. Don't turn there, but you can mark it in your notes. John 13, 34, and 35. That's where he says, and they will know you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. I, I give you this new commandment, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you love each other sacrificially, and people will notice These early Christians are devoting themselves to loving one another, and they're devoting themselves to loving outsiders as well. This is arguably the most diverse any local church in the history of the world has ever been. You know, we're we're aimed for diversity in local churches. It's a good thing. People of different ages, people of different racial backgrounds, people of different economic backgrounds, people, uh, you know, in all sorts of different categories. All the categories, my goodness. Are you sick of the categories? I'm so sick of the categories. I'm sick of the fact that we have to be defined by whatever, our age, our gender, our race, our political view, whatever the deal. I I want, you know what? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Listen. Do you notice I'm not looking at my notes? Okay, listen, here's the thing. If you get to heaven, and I hope you know Jesus, and if you do, you will get to heaven. When you get there, you're gonna be blown away by the diversity. And if everybody that you've ever had real fellowship with shared your political convictions, you're gonna freak out in heaven. And if everybody you've ever had real fellowship with had the same cultural background as you, you're gonna freak out when you get in heaven. And if you like it so that we really gather and weave our lives together only with people who have the same skin color and the same socioeconomic standing, et cetera, et cetera, you're gonna hate heaven. The church is diverse because God so loved the world and our mission involves that love ruled the day there were rich people and poor people educated and uneducated young and old male and female slaves and masters locals and immigrants but not a word is mentioned about separating along any of those lines they were all in one place they were all of one mind They had all things in common and they were sharing with all. Man, you don't see that these days. Not enough. The modern American church is not like that. We love to break ourselves into factions and put labels on. Should be enough that we all serve one Lord, that we're all filled with one spirit, that we all come under the authority of one book. Race, age, doctrinal distinctives, these are not unimportant issues. I'm not suggesting that they are but they pale in comparison to the significance of the fact that we're all in Christ. And so often people know we're religious because of the bumper sticker on our car or or because we're gone every Sunday morning. But they can't tell we love Jesus just by looking at our lives. All through the book of Acts, people are asking these Christians to explain themselves. People want to hear the reason for the hope that is within them. Because nobody is drawn to religion. Nobody is drawn to dogmatic distinctives. Nobody is drawn to judgmentalism. Nobody is is drawn to uh, tradition. You know what people are drawn to? People are drawn to Jesus when they see the love of Jesus lived out in the lives of the people of Jesus. 
That's what people are drawn to. And so Acts 2.47 says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's revival. Every day, more and more people coming into a saving relationship with Jesus. Not changing their religion. Entering a relationship with the living God. They were being caught up in a world-changing movement. And their lives would never be the same. And because of what God started in them, our lives will never be the same. And the lives of the people who bump into us should never be the same either. Because the movement continues in us, you guys. Future generations will be transformed as well, just as we've been transformed by the power of God. The wave of God's movement keeps rolling because the mark of the people of God is loving God, loving people, changing the world. Live your life in such a way that people will ask you about the hope that is within you. Happy Pentecost Sunday. The Spirit brought life to the church. That same life is carried out in you and me because the Spirit of God is the same today as he ever was then or before. For we're his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So who do you need to love? Who do you need to set an example for? I'm gonna ask you, let's just do this. Let's bow our heads. We're gonna close. I just wanna invite you to bow your heads, put your notes away, put your phone down. Just, just take a second, focus in on the Lord. And I'm gonna invite you to just think and ask God to bring to mind one person who you can make a point of loving this week. One person in whom it would make a difference if you shined with the love of Christ. One person you might share with, one person you might meet the need of, one person you might invite along with you somewhere even to worship. Ask God to drill that desire into your heart that that person's name would be before you all week. Find a way to shine the light of Jesus in the light of one person this week. Our Father, we come before you as people who have been touched by the fire of the Holy Spirit of God. So thankful to know that because of your power, because of your grace, because of your goodness, because of your love, we are a part of the movement that keeps going forward. Oh God, we, we hear your commands that we would go and make disciples of all nations. And we confess that too often they don't seem to see a reason to ask us for the hope that is within us. And so God, I pray that that hope would just bubble to the forefront in each of our lives, that our coworkers our children, our in-laws, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies might see the power and love of God in our lives and want to know how they can have that in their lives as well and then use us to share with them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.